0: Good morning, Uncle. I had hoped you would not come to court today, Patrick spurted out with a furrowed brow. Why is that, Patrick? Because, Uncle, I fear I will be too awestruck by your presence to do my duty for my clients. Besides, sir, I need to say some hard things about the clergy, and I am very unwilling to give pain to your feelings. Uncle Patrick gripped his bony fist tightly over the top of his cane and glared at Patrick with a stern expression. You should never have taken this case, Patrick. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind, you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. Today, we're about ready to go to court. With chapter 41 of The Voice, the Revolution, and the Key, as attorney at law, Patrick Henry gets ready for his biggest day in court ever. But uh, First, let's bring out your host. Uh, okay, uh, Liz. Uh, bonjour. Uh, Nigel. I say, greetings all. Uh, where's Max? He went outside to get the mail. Is the mail carrier out there?
1: <laughs> Max, get in here! <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did you go after the mail carrier? <laughs> no, I were just messing with him. Well, I for one thought better of you, Max. Uh, perhaps you can tell by the folding of my arms and the facial expression I'm carrying of utter disdain. Uh, oh yeah, there they are. Your wee little arms are folded all right. And it's becoming quite uncomfortable. Uh, I suppose your behavior, though, is simply in keeping with the poor reputation that dogs have regarding uh, mail carriers. Uh, that's not our fault, you know. Did you know that mail carrier britches are among the tastiest pants there are? Uh, s- so I've been told, then. Max, did you bite some mail? Oh, no, of course not. <laughs> I just like to make him think that I might. <laughs> not cool, Max. Oh, Relax. I were just barking. You see, I were messing with you, too. (laughs) So you weren't pulling his leg? You were pulling ours? (laughs) T'es bien, Nigel. Aye, good one, Mosey. But I wasn't joking. Aye, uh, anyway, uh, here you go, announcer lad. Here's your meal. Thanks, Max. Oh, yuck. It's all soggy. Well, he does have to carry it in his mouth, monsieur. Oh, you got dog slobber all over it. Well, I'm a dog. What kind of slobber were you expecting, then? Hey, he does make a good point, there, old chap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, here, Nigel, here's your copy of Rodent Monthly. I say, much obliged. Uh, yeah, and uh, Liz, this is yours. Oh, merci. Oh, look, someone wants me to extend the warranty on my car. Oh, and uh, Max, uh, this one here's for you. It's from the county office. I assume it's yours. It's addressed to Maximilian B.T. Bruce. Uh, that be me. The county? Uh Uh-oh. Is me dog license expired? No, it says here you're expected to be at the county courthouse by 9 a.m. Monday for trial selection. I say, old boy, seems you've been selected for jury duty. (laughs) Ha ha ha, that takes the biscuit. Me? Well, it is a great privilege, Max. We, part of our constitution in America, defendants are innocent until proven guilty and have a right to be given a fair trial before a jury of their peers. "'Piers, I'm a dog!' "'Of course it is a great responsibility as well, old boy, "'for you must hear all the testimony, uh, "'the cross-examinations, the character witnesses, and the like. "'Then, with your fellow jurors, "'you must deliberate on all the evidence presented "'and then come to a consensus.' "'Uh, Mousy, there were only about three words in your mouth "'that I kind of understood there. "'Oh, this be awful! "'Well, how long do these things take, then?' Well, it could be hours, uh, could be days, even weeks, perhaps. Uh, But what if I need to, you know, uh, uh, go outside? Oh, no problem, Max. They they take recesses every now and then. Oh, well, at least that'll be fun, as long as someone there can throw a ball for me to chase. Uh, Not that kind of recess. And I can't walk all the way to the county courthouse. I'm not even allowed to cross the street. No worries, Max. I'll drive you down there Monday morning. <laughs> Meanwhile, I say, should not we get rolling with today's chapter? But we haven't figured out... Not now, Max. We have a chapter to read, huh? Uh, it is all yours, monsieur. Uh, but, but, but... Uh... Chapter 41 Cause for the Parsons to Smile December 1st 1763. "'The perfect, Max! Merci!' Liz exclaimed, kissing Max on the cheek as she looked over the bunch of Scottish marigolds in the barn. "'You're welcome, Les,' Max replied, trying to spit the unpleasant taste from the flowers out of his mouth. "'Now, will you tell me what in the name of Pete you plan to do with them?' Nigel picked up a flower to smell the fragrance, "'I second that request.' "'They look tasty to me,' Miss P chimed in. "'If you're taking suggestions.' "'Since daisies are not currently in bloom, I needed for Max to find these instead,' Liz replied, "'starting to tie two of the stems together. "'If I am right, these will help Patrick find his voice in the court.' Max and Nigel looked at one another wide-eyed, wondering if Liz had lost her mind.' Maybe the stress of these past three weeks has been too much for the lass, Max whispered to Nigel. Liz finished tying the two stems together and held them up. Voila! Now if you will excuse me, I need to find the girls. She picked up the flowers in her mouth and went running to the house. Miss P. looked down at a very confused Max and Nigel and stomped her hoof into the dirt with a snort. Let it play, boys. Let it play. Patrick Henry was pacing back and forth, mumbling to himself while he tied his white silk cravat around his neck. He was clearly nervous, as he kept messing up his knot and had to start over. When he pulled it off for the second time, he heard a soft knock at the door. He turned, and there stood his eight-year-old daughter, smiling with her hands behind her back. Patsy? Patrick said, smiling back. I have something for you, Papa, she said. You do, Patrick answered, leaving his untied cravat around his neck and coming over to bend down and look into the cherub-like face of his little girl. What is it? Close your eyes, instructed Patsy. Patrick instantly obeyed. From behind her back, she pulled a laurel of marigolds she placed over his head can open your eyes now. The 27-year-old father opened his eyes and saw the Scottish marigolds his daughter had tied together for him. He wrinkled his brow, followed by a smile. Why, thank you, little girl. It's beautiful. Uh, What's this for? Mama said you have a hard day ahead in court, so we need to encourage and pray for you to help you win. She told me She once made you a daisy-chain laurel to give you after you won a race. Patsy explained. These aren't daisies, but I thought I'd make you a marigold laurel to give you before your big case, since I know you'll win. Patrick felt a lump in his throat at the loving gesture from his daughter and the sweet memory of the St. Andrew's Day race so very long ago. He cupped Patsy's cheek with his hand. Thank you, Patsy. This means so much to me. He kissed her on the forehead. But Mama gave me her laurel after I didn't win the race. But you stuck up for the little boy and did the right thing, even though the bully crossed the finish line, Patsy argued. What could be a better way to win than doing the right thing? the little girl kissed her father on the cheek and turned to go help with breakfast, leaving Patrick standing there speechless. Liz wiped away a tear of joy as she watched this moment. Sally appeared in the doorway, holding baby William. She smiled and gently touched the marigold laurel around Patrick's neck. "'I think our daughter just may follow in your footsteps, Mr. Henry. She made quite the argument for what it means to truly win.' And I happen to agree with her. No matter what happens in court today, you know where we stand, my love. More importantly, she is following in your footsteps, Mrs. Henry. Patrick kissed Sally and put his hand tenderly on baby William's small head. Thank you, Sally. Just knowing my family supports me will give me the strength I need, no matter what comes.' Are you ready to go up against Thomas Jefferson's tutor? Sally asked. Patrick winced. Uh, Knowing Reverend Maury prepared Tom for William and Mary only adds to the pressure I feel having to come against the parson. I'm sure he is a fine man in many respects, and I realize he has eleven children to provide for. Part of me struggles with knowing all this about Maury, but I must keep my focus on his behavior over this two penny act business and you will keep your focus pat although not if you wear this into court today sally reminded him with a smile lifting the marigolds i won't wear it but i will certainly carry it with me patrick assured his wife taking off the laurel and carefully placing it deep inside his large buttoned coat pocket i'll let patsy know sally promised her dimples showing "'One thing is for certain about court today, Mr. Henry.' "'What's that, Mrs. Henry?' Patrick inquired, fixing his cravat and putting on his coat before heading out the door. Sally winked. "'This will be the nicest you've ever smelled in a courtroom.' Despite the early morning December chill in the air, the courtyard outside Hanover Courthouse was packed with people milling about who had poured in from the surrounding countryside." Farmers, merchants, and citizens from all other walks of life gathered in the usual festival-like atmosphere of court day, arriving on horseback, by carriage, or on foot. Some were dressed in their modest homespun clothes, while others donned the silk and satin finery of their wealthy station. As always, it was a melting pot of diverse Virginians, but this time they all had come for one common purpose, to see what would happen with the Parsons' cause. There was, however, one group of people who did stand out in the crowd, and they were dressed exactly alike. Twenty black-robed and white-bewigged parsons gathered with heads together under the brick arches of the courthouse portico, speaking in hushed tones. They would occasionally turn and look at the crowd milling about, no doubt assessing who were potential jurors for Maury's case. The people also occasionally turned and looked at the group of parsons, no doubt making comments about which parsons had traveled to be here and about how much money Maury would get today. The court's decision in November had shocked the people of Virginia, and they knew it was the money in each man's pocket that was actually on trial today. Isn't that Reverend Alexander White the parson who lost his jury case in King William Courthouse? A spectator asked. Rubbing his hands and blowing into them against the chill, ay, and the parish has been in an uproar against us dissenters ever since. Came the Scottish burr of an angry parishioner, his icy breath rising into the cold air. He clenched his jaw angrily. If he weren't the man of the cloth. Patrick Henry tucked his folder of papers under his arm and patted the coat pocket with his daughter's gift inside. He smiled, took a deep breath and crossed the street from Hanover Tavern, scanning the crowds and already feeling the butterflies in his stomach from the audience he would face today. The brick Hanover courthouse, with its five Roman arches, loomed in front of him. "'Pat!' came a welcoming voice as he started up the walkway. It was his best friend, and now brother-in-law, Samuel Meredith, who had married his sister, Jane. He smiled and held out a hand. "'Big day ahead!' "'Sam, it's good to see a friendly face,' Patrick replied, heartily shaking his hand. "'Yes, and I think all Hanover County is here for the big day.' "'Not to mention most of Louisa County, and people from at least a dozen others,' Sam answered as the two men looked around the courtyard. He put a hand on Patrick's shoulder. "'I want you to know that I'll be serving as one of the justices today, along with your half-brother John Syme, Jr., and your uncle Anthony Winston.' Hopefully that will ease your nerves a bit to see us on the bench. I can't imagine how hard it will be to see your father up there as the presiding judge. (laughs) Are you ready? Thanks, Sam. I'm as ready as I'll ever be, except for one matter, Patrick answered, his gaze suddenly following the familiar black carriage belonging to his Uncle Patrick. The driver pulled on the reins as it came to a stop in front of the courthouse. "'Hold this, please, will you, Sam?' Patrick requested as he handed the file of papers to Sam. Patrick hurried over to the carriage as the driver got ready to step down from his bench to open the door. "'I'll handle this. Thank you, sir,' Patrick offered with a hand raised to the driver so he would remain seated. Patrick put his foot up on the carriage step and leaned his arms on the open window, but did not open the door. His uncle beamed a wide smile. "'Why, good morning, Patrick!' "'How kind of you to greet me!' "'Good morning, Uncle. "'I had hoped you would not come to court today,' "'Patrick spurted out with a furrowed brow. "'Uncle Patrick was clearly taken aback. "'He narrowed his eyes and tilted his head. "'Why is that, Patrick?' "'Because, Uncle, you know I have not yet spoken in public "'for a large case like this. "'I fear I will be too awestruck by your presence "'to do my duty for my clients,' Patrick began.' drawing a look of shock from his uncle. "'Besides, sir, I need to say some hard things about the clergy, and I am very unwilling to give pain to your feelings.' Uncle Patrick gripped his bony fist tightly over the top of his cane and glared at Patrick with a stern expression. Ye should never have taken this case, Patrick.' Patrick tightened his lips and forced a nod. "'Well,' It would seem the clergy thought me unworthy of representing their side of the argument, and I can find no moral principle that would require me to refuse a fee from the opposing side. I am working hard to build my law practice, Uncle. Patrick averted his gaze for a moment and saw one of his former customers from his failed store, Mr. Smythe. He never would forget the day he allowed Mr. Smythe to take that hoe on credit." The struggling tobacco farmer was ashamed to have to ask for such help, but was so appreciative to receive it. Uncle Patrick was his family, but today helping Mr. Smythe and countless people like him was Patrick's priority. He turned back to his uncle. Dear uncle, my affections are always yours, but in this controversy, both my heart and judgment, as well as my professional duty, are on the side of the people. "'Uncle Patrick lifted his chin and leaned back in his seat "'with a look of disappointment. "'I see.' "'Please, Uncle, I beg you to do me the favor "'of not attending court today,' Patrick implored. "'I ask you to please leave the grounds.' "'Uncle Patrick took in a deep breath "'and exhaled through his nostrils. (sighs) "'Very well, Patrick.' "'He then leaned forward and held up his cane "'to accentuate his words.' But as to your sayin hard things of the clergy, I advise ye to let that alone. Take my word for it. ye will do more harm to yourself than to them. His face then softened slightly. As to me leaving the grounds, I fear, my boy, that my presence could neither do ye harm nor good in such a cause. However, since ye seem to think otherwise, and desire it of me so earnestly, I will leave." Patrick smiled and reached into the carriage to squeeze his uncle's arm. "'Thank you, Uncle.' He stepped back from the carriage and called up the driver. "'Reverend Henry will not be staying. You may drive on, good sir.' Patrick put a finger to his hat in thanks and bowed respectfully to his uncle. "'Good day, Uncle.' The driver tipped his hat in acknowledgment and snapped the reins. As the carriage pulled away, Patrick let loose a huge sigh of relief and shared a knowing look with Sam, who had stood by to witness the tense scene. Now I feel as ready as I'll ever be, Sam. Let's get to court. As Patrick and Sam headed up the sidewalk to enter the courthouse, Liz and Nigel scurried behind them and slipped inside unnoticed. Meanwhile, Max sat under a tree where Cato rested in the branches. "'Together they watched as Uncle Patrick's carriage "'drove away from the square. "'Good thing Patrick got his uncle to leave,' observed Cato. "'That'll make things easier for him in court.' "'Aye,' Max replied as he kept his gaze on the carriage. "'He wanted to make sure Uncle Patrick stayed gone.' "'Suddenly the carriage stopped "'after it passed two men heading toward the courthouse on foot, "'Samuel Morris and Roger Shackelford. "'Uncle Patrick poked his head out the window,' and looked back at the two men with an angry stare. Samuel Morris, the bricklayer, was the man most responsible for starting the dissenter movement in Hanover County. He had built the very first reading house and was Samuel Davies' closest supporter and friend at Green Meeting House. Roger Shackelford was one of Reverend Henry's own parishioners and had the nerve to once call Reverend Henry an unconverted wretch and had been brought up on charges for allowing a dissenter to preach at his house. Uncle Patrick banged his hand on the outside of the door and called up to his driver, Turn this carriage around and take me back to the courthouse. Looks like trouble coming back this way, Max growled. That Scottish uncle needs to learn to hold his horses, Cato opined with a frown. Max and Cato looked at one another. Why don't you occupy the driver while this Scotty slows down his horse? Max growled and took off running toward the carriage, while Cato lifted off into the air. The courtroom benches were packed, and people lined the gray-paneled walls as the room hummed with the expectant fervor of spectators ready to watch the proceedings. Nervous whispers rose to the wooden rafters high in the ceiling above. Light filled the room from tall windows to the right and left of the courtroom as well as the large door that remained open onto the covered portico at the back of the courtroom. Two side doors led to the judges' chambers and the jury room. At the front of the courtroom, a wooden spindled bar separated the spectators from the higher positions of the court. A single wooden step behind the bar led up to the area where the lawyers sat with their clients at their respective tables. Between the attorney tables, the court clerk maintained a desk and the sheriff stood at attention during court proceedings. Beyond them, two more wooden steps led to an elevated platform where the presiding judge's bench sat in the center. To his far left was the jury box with benches to hold 12 jurors. To his immediate left and right were benches to hold the additional four to six attending justices. Hanging on the wall behind the judge's bench, was the royal coat of arms bearing its two supporters the powerful crowned british lion and the sinister scottish unicorn which heralded danger to those daring to come against the throne the mottoes diet mon droit god and my right and honi soit qui malipensa shame upon him who thinks evil of it graced the royal shields between the two supporters a large map of Virginia hung on the side wall, and portraits of King George I, King George II, and the newly added King George III graced the courtroom to keep watch over the spectators and representative court of His Majesty's colony. Liz and Nigel scurried through the legs of the spectators to slip under a low bench in front of the bar. From here, they would be able to see everything that took place. Patrick Henry sat with Johnson and Brown at the right table, speaking in hushed tones. King's attorney Peter Lyons sat with Reverend Maury at the left table, also going over last-minute details of the case. Suddenly, the courtroom of spectators parted as the 20 black-robed parsons entered the room. They proceeded to pass the bar and walk right up to the benches to the right of the judge's bench. Since the courtroom was packed, they asked permission to sit where only lawyers were normally allowed. They desired to sit above the common area where everyone else was required to stay. What are they doing up there? Nigel asked incredulously. Liz wrinkled her brow. Obviously making a statement. The sheriff pounded his stick on the wooden floor. Oh, yeah! Oh, yeah! The court will now come to order. The Honorable Justice Henry presiding. All rise. Immediately, everyone got to their feet while Judge John Henry entered the room with six justices in tow. Patrick took a deep breath, held his chin high, and locked eyes with Sam, who gave him an affirming nod. Judge Henry looked around the courtroom at the standing-room-only crowd. Good day. You may be seated. In the audience were several Virginia Burgesses, several members of the Johnson family from Louisa County, "'and the citizens of Hanover and surrounding counties. "'He gave a cursory glance at his son, "'but turned his attention to the sheriff "'and lifted his outstretched palm. "'Sir, if you will please call the first case.' "'The case of Maury v. Johnson is hereby called,' "'the sheriff replied, "'handing an official document to the judge. "'Is counsel ready for trial?' "'Judge Henry asked the attorneys, "'who each responded in the affirmative. "'Very well,' Sheriff, you may summon a select jury for the case. As the sheriff left the courtroom, the buzz of the spectators resumed while Judge Henry and the other justices filed out to wait in the judge's chambers. I do hope the sheriff is able to secure a jury sympathetic to our Patrick, Nigel stated. Liz studied Patrick to assess how he seemed to be holding up as the case was getting ready to begin. The twenty parsons sat like vultures over the desk where Patrick sat with Johnson and Brown. We, the other side of this courtroom needs a counterbalance for the scales of justice up there beyond the bar. In short order, the sheriff returned to the courthouse and Judge Henry and the justices once more filled their benches. The sheriff filed in with his docket of prospective jurors who waited behind the bar. He handed his list of jurors to the judge, who then instructed him to share it with each attorney. Immediately, Reverend Maury scowled and whispered in the ear of Peter Lyons his displeasure with the list, looking back and pointing at the prospective twelve men. "'The nerve!' Nigel exclaimed, bawling his fists. "'That Maury just told Lyons that the sheriff pulled these men from the vulgar herd!' "'Steady, Nigel!' Liz replied calmly. Your Honour, my client objects to this list. It appears that the sheriff quickly paraded through an audience of gentlemen in Hanover Tavern, but proceeded to select casual bystanders from the green outside, Lyons offered. Reverend Maury only knows one or two of these men, and claims that none of them belong to the gentleman class. Furthermore... The sentiments of many of these men are known to be for dissenters and against the clergy. Patrick Henry immediately shot to his feet and raised his hand. Your Honor, these are honest men and are therefore unexceptionable. The sheriff took care to excuse one gentleman selected who is unfit to serve, as he is a church warden, so we can all be assured he has carried out his charge with integrity.' He turned and looked over the men standing behind the bar, holding up his hand to them. This jury holds only a minority of dissenters and is honored to have many gentlemen from prominent families, some who are large landowners and do greater respect than my opponent has shown them. Judge Henry nodded. The jury is approved. Uh, Sheriff, please swear in the jurors so we may proceed. The Parsons frowned while murmurs of approval rippled through the spectators as the jurors stepped forward to swear their oaths on the Bible. Soon, these twelve men took their seats in the jurors' box. Benjamin Anderson, John Wingfield, George Dabney, John Thornton, Samuel Morris, Brewster Sims, William Claybrook, Stephen Willis, Jacob Hundley, Roger Shackelford, John Blackwell, and Benjamin Oliver. You see, my Henry secured a promising jury with no trouble, Liz told Nigel. Samuel Morris and Roger Shackelford are both up there. This is going very well so far, no? Nigel preened his whiskers. I'm delightfully pleased to see those dissenters, as well as Patrick's cousin, George Dabney. Although Patrick tipped George's canoe, (laughs) I believe he will keep Mr. Henry's defense afloat. "'The plaintiff's counsel may begin,' Judge Henry announced, as the court was finally in order. Lyons stood and handed a series of papers to the sheriff, who then gave them to Judge Henry. "'Your Honor, I introduce as testimony the bond of the defendants as collectors for Louisa County, and the order of the vestry directing a levy to be made for the salary of Mr. Murray in 1759.' I also offer the evidence of two witnesses, Mr. Guest and Mr. McDowell, the largest tobacco dealers in the county. They confirm that the seventeen fifty nine price of tobacco in the county was fifty shillings per hundred pounds. Judge Henry looked over the documents. Very well, does the plaintiff's counsel wish to present any more evidence? No, Your Honor. We have nothing further. Lyons replied, taking his seat. "'Does the counsel for the Defense wish to offer evidence for this case?' Judge Henry asked, looking down at Patrick. Patrick Henry looked through his folder and picked up a piece of paper that he then gave to the Sheriff. "'Yes, Your Honor. I have here the signed receipt of payment made to Mr. Morey in 1759 for 144 pounds, which was the value of the tobacco due him per the Two-Penny Act passed by the Assembly. He turned to take his seat, announcing— I have nothing further. The people in the audience exchanged disappointed glances at each other. That's it? He doesn't have anything else, Dad? This doesn't look promising. Lyons again rose to give his attention to the jury. Gentlemen of the jury, my opponent has presented a receipt for a woefully inadequate salary paid to my client, the Honorable Reverend Murray according to the expert testimony i have submitted the price of tobacco for 1759 should have yielded 3 times the amount paid to my client therefore my client found it necessary to file suit for the difference in pay in order to receive what was legally due him the defendant has no argument for the 2 penny law was struck down by the king as null and void and affirmed as such by this court in November. This point must be made very clear. The matter of the law is settled. The tall Irish attorney gripped the open edges of his waistcoat. The only task before you, the members of the jury, is to make one simple calculation. The difference between the £144 already paid to my client and the amount he is due based on the actual value of tobacco for the year of 1759. The dissenters among the jury members looked at one another with frowns. Lyons scanned their faces and how they glared at the Parsons, who sat in places of honor across the platform. Lyons proceeded to smile and hold up his hand to the Parsons. "'Could there ever be such a high calling in society?' "'as to care for the souls of the people.' "'He should have stopped with the evidence,' "'Nigel whispered to Liz as Lyons walked over to stand before the Parsons, "'showering them with praise for their good-heartedness "'and loving watch-care over their flocks. "'Liz studied Patrick as he listened to Lyons gush forth "'a sickening dialogue of attributes "'that none of the Parsons sitting on his lofty perch possessed.' The Parsons lifted their chins in the air approvingly. Lyons sensed the popular feelings some of the jury have against the clergy, so decided to paint them in a more favorable light. The attorney doth protest too much, methinks, Nigel quipped, quoting Shakespeare. I believe this shall play right into our Henry's hands. We, oui. for Patrick this case is about money supposedly due a group of wolves, "'who profess to be shepherds,' Liz replied. "'You will not stand for such false praise and the trampling of the truth. "'It is time for Mont Henry to find that sliver of a wedge to tear down Lyons' case.' Lyons finally took his seat, and all eyes were on Patrick Henry. "'It was time for his reply. "'Either he was going to bow to the accepted facts of the charge to the jury,' or he was going to speak up against what was taking place. Curiosity was on tiptoe. Patrick rose and cleared his throat. He looked up and felt the weight of the stairs from the parson seated above him. He felt their silent warning. Do not cross the king. Do not cross the Church of England. Do not cross us. Patrick looked up at his father's intense gaze directed at him, and felt his silent admonition. Do not feel again. He nodded respectfully to the bench and swallowed uncomfortably against the thought. Gentlemen, Patrick stuttered as he loosened his cravat. He turned around to see the audience leaning in with eager anticipation for his reply. He felt their silent plea. Do something. Fight for us. I wish to... I mean I mean to say that... He continued haltingly, clearing his throat again. His posture was slightly stooped and bent over. A low murmur rippled through the room as embarrassing discomfort filled the courthouse. The people looked at one another and hung their heads. Some crossed their arms and shook their heads while wearing looks of crushing disappointment. Several even filed out of the room, waving their hands and muttering quietly... ''Henry doesn't know what he's doing. His defense is worthless. We've come here for nothing.'' Patrick fiddled with his papers on the table, stalling as his mind struggled for the words he needed. ''If it please the court,'' were the only words he could utter. The intensity and the gravity of the moment caused his mind to go blank and his mouth to shut in silence. Nigel and Liz looked at one another in despair. Patrick's father sank down into his seat, clearly embarrassed as he watched his son failing once more, this time in front of the entire community. The twenty Parsons wore smug expressions, sitting in their elevated seats in the courtroom, looking down their noses at Patrick and the people. Oh, but they were very pleased indeed. They were all smiling at seeing Patrick flounder and grasp for what to say. They knew they had finally won against these people who dared to come against them. Finally, the dissenters and anyone else defying the Parsons' authority would be put in their place under the heels of the Parsons, mouthpieces of the king. Watching this pitiful attempt at opposition to their power filled them with delicious satisfaction. Patrick looked up and noticed one of the Parsons elbowing another next to him. They looked to the back of the courthouse triumphantly nodding and smiling at someone who had entered the room. Patrick turned to see who it was. His stomach lurched, and he instantly broke into a sweat. It was none other than his Uncle Patrick. Oh, my poor Mont Henry. He has such a tough job. And a tough audience. Well, at least he don't have jury duty. Well, actually, I think you'll find that he indeed does have- Oh, you know what I mean. I have to be at the county building Monday morning, filling out forms with me wee paws. Well, don't worry, I can help you with that. Uh, so, do you know your social security number? Me what? <clears throat> I don't even know what that is. And I didn't even know a wee doggy could even be called for jury duty in the first place. Uh, they can't, Max. Wait, what? Uh, Quite so, Max. Uh, Dogs and, uh, well, virtually all other non-human species are indeed exempt from jury duty. Well, then, what's with the letter and all this malarkey aboot? There was no letter. Uh, I was just teasing you, Max. (sighs) Uh, 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 down, boy. Monsieur Announcer was just giving you a hard time, Uh, much like your treatment as a mail carrier, mon ami. Indeed. In a similar fashion, seems the old boy was a... <laughs> uh, pulling your leg. <laughs> <laughs> good one, Nigel. Uh, fine. You had your wee laugh. And I weren't pulling his leg either, nor his pantaloons. No, but now the mail carrier may no longer feel safe to even drop off the mail. <sighs> I see what you mean. <sighs> I were a bad doggy. Nah, you're a good dog. You just made a poor choice. So, how do I make it up to the mail carrier lad then? Well, perhaps, first, old boy, you simply need to take it to the Maker, mm -hmm, and sincerely ask him to forgive you. And uh, he will, of course. Then ask him what to do to make things right. Yeah, and then, and this is key, listen for his answer. Which can be tricky. Oui, but... uh, oh, I have an idea. Let's ask Miss Jenny how she listens to God. Indeed. Uh, Jenny's Corner, here we come. I say, uh, uh, Miss Jenny.
1: Hey, Nigel. Uh,
0: Greetings. Uh, Miss Jenny, you're an inspiration to us all. Uh, And one reason is because we know that you listen to God. Uh, But then, pray tell, uh, how is it that you go about listening to God?
1: Well, God doesn't tend to talk to me very audibly, specifically. (laughs) He did once, actually, when I was getting ready to start writing. And I was in bed asleep one night, and I heard this rush of wind almost by my ear, and it just said, my name, Jenny. And I sat up straight in bed, and I kind of tingled from head to toe. And it was kind of like that Samuel moment, you know, from the Bible, when God just spoke his name. And, you know, I looked around, and there was nothing. All the world was asleep. And I think that that was God preparing me just by speaking my name to start writing, because that happened shortly before I became an author. But since then, you know, I listen to God in lots of other ways. One is, of course, through scripture. Before I meet the world every morning, I got to meet him and get my cues and my strengths and wisdom for the day. So I spend some time in God's Word and praying for the day, and I pray for my readers every day as well and their families. So please know that I do that. And then God, sometimes will answer in my heart and my spirit about things. But many times, He speaks to me through things I read in my research. Friends or readers send me notes of either something I didn't know or encouragement things like that. And so he speaks to me in a myriad of ways. You know, he speaks to me a lot in nature with signs and beautiful things. I don't ask for them, but many times I'll see little love notes in clouds. He likes to show me sevens (laughs) in clouds. And that's kind of like my love language with God of just, just little love winks and things of affirmation. And they usually come when I'm tired or Just need some zeal to keep going. So that's basically how I try to listen, not only with my ears, but with my eyes of what I read, of what I see, and what other people speak into my life. Uh, But the main way is through prayer and that still small voice when he's got something to say, which is always important to hear.
0: Ah, so wise. Uh, Merci, madame. Ha, aye. You know, she reminded me of something I already knew. All the way back to the wind in those reeds before we met Noah, when all I heard were, Come. And I just knew I could trust the voice, and sure enough, it were the Maker, leading us to a grand adventure. Ah, Toby and Max, and uh, we, the Maker has been known to do that. Especially when we just take the time to quietly listen. And uh, speaking of which, we thank you for listening to today's podcast. I say right? uh, uh, so we'll uh, just leave it there for now. I say so. Then, uh, cheerio. I I like cheerios. That is not what he meant. Well, that's what I meant. I really like it. Up once again, the epic order of the seven. The podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee, Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grand day! A biento, mes amis. And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.